Amen. Please join me now in the prayer for illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 19. Listen to God's word for us. The heavens are telling the glory of the Lord, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes throughout all the earth, in their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from its wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making the wise simple, and the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can detect detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture passage comes from the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 1, verses 35 through 37. Listen again to God's word for us. In the morning, while it was still very dark, Jesus got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, please join me once again in in prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word, with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love. Grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Jesus got up early. Before the sun rose, he left the house and he went to a solitary place to pray. Now this is something Jesus would do regularly throughout his ministry. Uh, As the Gospel of Luke notes, uh, Jesus often withdrew to deserted places to pray. But in our passage this morning, we're at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
He had literally just burst on the scene uh, the day before in Capernaum. Capernaum was a small fishing town on the Sea of Galilee uh, that archaeological evidence suggests was no more than about 1,500 people. So you can imagine that's about this sanctuary filled two times over. Not that big. And Jesus had also, he had just called Simon, Andrew, James, and John from their fishing nets to follow them. Uh, And they had gone with Jesus just the day before to the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, And that day before was the Sabbath. And so when Jesus went into the synagogue, uh, he began teaching. And he began teaching as one who had authority. He was proclaiming uh, that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news and the gospel. And everybody who was gathered in the synagogue that day was astonished with the clarion call of Jesus' teaching in itself. On Jesus' teaching about God's righteousness and God's steadfast love, God's being for us despite our being against God. But then as Jesus was preaching, there was also a man who just stood up in the synagogue and screamed at Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus immediately silenced this demon and cast it out right there on the spot. And as you can imagine, in a small, fairly sleepy town of Capernaum, the buzz about Jesus swiftly began to spread after he was casting out demons, in addition to teaching with authority. And by that evening, at sunset, when the Sabbath had ended the entire town descended on Simon Peter and Andrew's house where Jesus had retired. And all those who were sick or possessed with demons were brought in breathless hope to Jesus. And Jesus cured many who were sick and cast out many demons, presumably well into the night. But then, early in the morning, before the sun rose, Jesus gets up while everybody else is still asleep, and he goes off to a deserted place, and he prays. And we can only imagine everybody's shock and more so their dismay when the sun rose and everybody was rubbing the sleep out of their eyes and they discover that Jesus is gone. This man who just hours before had spurred a flash mob of manifest goodness and healing, of eager learning and rapt attention and his authoritative teaching about God and the ways and the will of God for this world— This man had vanished. And it's understandable then why Simon and the other disciples are described as swiftly leaping up and going to, quote, hunt for Jesus. They themselves had literally just been called by Jesus, uh, called to go be uh, fishers of men instead of just fishers of fish. And the Greek word that's translated here as hunt, it's actually got the same root as the word for persecution, interestingly. Simon and the other disciples, uh, they were pursuing, chasing after Jesus. They were looking to capture this man, bring him back. Uh, And the fear that they had lost him had to have crept in their minds and quickened their feet and driven their searching gaze. They had to find this guy. There's also an interesting parallel here between the disciples going out and searching for Jesus uh, and the women going to the tomb uh, as well. Jesus rising early in the morning, that phrase early in the morning, it pops up again at the very end of the gospel. It's the same word that's used for when the women rose to go to the tomb, also right after the Sabbath ended, 
um, to care for Jesus' body. They similarly, just like the disciples, must have been thinking Jesus was gone, vanished. This man in whom they put their hopes. At this point, uh, the disciples also had not yet learned about uh, Jesus' habit of stepping off to solitary places to pray. Um, So they probably did think they'd lost him. So when they found him, uh, they declared with breathless combination of exasperation, joy, relief, everybody's looking for you. I.e., there are a whole bunch more people that you didn't heal last night that are lined up wondering and worrying about where you are. But Jesus responds, uh, presumably birthed out of his time in prayer, uh, with a discerning clarity of direction, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that's what I've come to do. And there's a whole lot more to dig into around discernment uh, in Jesus' response there than we can get into this morning. But suffice it to say uh, that he continued going on through synagogues and throughout Galilee, teaching, healing, casting out demons. And the power that Jesus exhibited in all those times, uh, the power as well as the clarity of his message and his ministry, it was always rooted in prayer. In those times where Jesus would get away to a solitary place to pray, to be in communication, in conversation with God. And we should note, as a quick aside, if Jesus is God, who was Jesus talking to? Uh, Himself? In some respects, yes. Uh, As we affirm in the teaching of the Trinity, there is something fundamentally relational, communal, at the root of who God is. And the dance and the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, all of which is, in some ways, beyond our comprehension, it also bears out tangibly uh, in the ways in which Jesus constantly was getting away to pray and connect, be in relationship. The disciples themselves uh, recognized this power uh, that Jesus had from prayer. Uh, And I think it's important to note here that the kind of prayer that Jesus engaged in where he would go off to a solitary place for hours, sometimes all night long, praying. That type of prayer uh, can be a very daunting thing. Uh, Although it's a spiritual gift and a wondrous capacity for for which God made each of us, that type of prayer, it certainly feels like something uh, that some people are maybe better at than others. It can feel like something that seems uh, even overwhelming to be able to pray and connect with God and commune with God in that way. Um, And we should also know that sometimes when we're praying, at least for me, it's unclear sometimes what you feel like you're even supposed to be doing. It feels like you're just closing your eyes even uh, to little effect. Um, There's a French Christian philosopher named Simone Weil. Uh, She lived in the early 20th century uh, who's got kind of an amusing aside about this kind of phenomenon that I've at least experienced when I go to try to pray and I feel like I'm just going to Closing my eyes, closing my eyes really tightly. Uh, Simone Weil she wrote about the link between uh, the kind of attention that we have in prayer and are trying to develop in prayer, and the kind of attention that we devote to things like schoolwork. Uh, and she notes, uh, she highlights that prayer really consists of attention to God. Uh, but she says that sometimes, quote, attention can be confused with a kind of muscular effort. Um, And she's a teacher again. She says, sometimes if you say to your pupils, 
Now you must pay attention. One sees them contracting their brows, holding their breath, stiffening their muscles. And if after two minutes they're asked what they've been paying attention to, they can't reply. They've been contracting on, concentrating rather, on nothing. They haven't been paying attention. They've been contracting their muscles. I don't know if anybody else here has ever felt that way uh, after an ostensible time of prayer, but I certainly have. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I still feel like a total novice, uh, a highly inadequate as a prayer. Some of you may share uh, some of those same sentiments that I do, either like you feel like you don't pray enough, or you don't know what to pray, or you have great difficulty starting a prayer and therefore rarely pray. Or you feel silly praying for things when it feels like sometimes you're just talking to yourself. Or you're convinced that what's going on in your life is not even worthy of God's attention, given all the other things going on in the world. Wars, illness, injury, death, corruption. I've even, along these lines, had moments where I felt verbally paralyzed before prayer. Unsure, unable of what to say. Stop short of even being able to utter words to the living God. I've also, though, uh, found it encouraging that even Jesus' disciples didn't feel like they knew how to pray. The Gospel of Luke recounts a day when Jesus had returned to the disciples after one of these times when he'd been away praying, and they asked Jesus point blank, point blank, Lord, teach us how to pray. And it was in response to this request that Jesus taught the disciples what we now call the Lord's Prayer, And he taught it to them not necessarily uh, in order that they repeat those exact words all the time, but that they hit the themes highlighted in this type of prayer, this type of address to God. Praising God's reign and the good news of God's just loving kingdom breaking into the earth, breaking in on earth as it is in heaven. Recognizing human dependence on God for life and sustenance. Highlighting our need to seek forgiveness and to forgive others. Confessing our weakness before the forces of evil and our need for God's steadfast love. Jesus taught his disciples to pray about those kinds of things. But I'll say, even more than the comfort I take in the fact that Jesus' disciples had trouble praying, uh, I take the most assurance and the power um, from words that Paul writes or wrote in his letter to the churches in Rome. Paul, a prayer warrior, constantly praying in his letters, he writes in Romans that we don't even necessarily need to worry about knowing how or what to pray because, quote, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And God, who searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit is praying for us. Uh, And Paul is telling us that our prayers can literally begin, God, I don't even know how to pray. God, I don't even know what to pray. Help me pray. Help me talk to you. Help me hear you. That's a wonderfully humble starting point. It's a beautifully low barrier to entry. It allows our prayers to commence in a far less pressurized spiritual space. We don't have to get things right. We just have to begin. Along this line, uh, our lack of knowing exactly how to talk to God, what to say to God, uh, 
I think it's really fruitful to think of prayer, as Simone Weil did, as paying attention to God. Thinking about prayer as paying attention to God. Now, what does that mean, paying attention to God? Uh, That can still seem abstract, a little bit hard. Uh, We are dealing with the incomprehensibly infinite creator and redeemer of the universe when we talk about paying attention to God. So what precisely can we focus on or pay attention to when thinking about God, when trying to talk to God? And along those lines, furthermore, when we're talking to God, it can seem hard as well because usually when you're having a conversation with another person, you expect them to communicate back in some respect, uh, whether through words, actions, movements, something. Uh, So also, how do we know when God is talking to us? Um, I imagine uh, most of us, if not all of us in the sanctuary, fall short of the kind of connection to God that someone like Moses or the prophets had, in which they literally heard God speaking with powerful clarity to them. Uh, For the rest of us, paying attention to God and hearing God is not quite that direct or immediate. So what are we supposed to do? We can lift up thoughts, we can lift up words, songs, actions to God, but again, it sometimes feels like this is a one-way street. And it certainly feels like it's a one-way street if we're waiting to hear some booming voice. There's a book by a guy named Brant Baker called Teaching Prayer that offers a helpful insight here. Particularly when thinking about listening for God, he urges us to shift away from the question, how do we hear God, to focus on the question, what are we listening for when we're listening to God? And that shift from how do we hear God to what are we listening for when we're trying to listen to God That shift does two things. First, it takes away the, quote, suggestion that somehow our spirituality doesn't measure up because we can't hear God's words directly to us. The second thing that shift does is it it recognizes that God is actually constantly communicating with us in ways that are not simply booming voices, either in the sky or in our heads. The 4th century bishop of Hippo, uh, Augustine, hits on this notion in his confessions when he writes, quote, What do I love when I love my God? It's not a material beauty or a beauty of a temporal order. It's not the brilliance of earthly light, so welcome to our eyes. It's not the sweet melody of harmony and song. It's not the fragrance of flowers, perfumes, or spices. It's not manna or honey, not limbs such as the body delights to embrace. It's not these that I love when I love my God. And yet, when I love my God, it is true that I love a light of a certain kind, a voice, a perfume, a food, an embrace. But they're not of the kind that I love in my inner self, when my soul is bathed in light that is not bound by space, when it listens to sound that never dies away, when it breathes fragrance that is not borne away by the wind, when it tastes food that is never consumed by the eating, when it clings to an embrace from which it is not severed by the fulfillment of desire. This is what I love when I love my God. Augustine there is saying, there are aspects of our good creation uh, that resemble God's goodness. There are things in good creation which we can look to and point to as we're starting to try to draw our attention to God. And Psalm 19, which we read earlier, similarly highlights this idea. It highlights actually two primary places 
where we can hear God communicating to us. Places we can begin to attend to God, to pay attention to God, that are far more tangible and palpable than just thinking about God in the abstract. The first thing that, the Psalm, that Psalm 19 points to was the creation itself, the creation which is proclaiming God, uh, its creator. And the second place that Psalm 19 pointed to was God's law and God's ways in the world as a place in which we can begin to pay attention to God and to glimpse God. So that first one, creation, again, thinking about what Augustine was saying, Recognizing and appreciating the beauty, the intricacy, and the wonder of a good creation of which we are part is one way we can begin to pay attention to God in prayer, to hear God communicating to us. In its resemblances of infinite goodness, creation simultaneously testifies to God, and it's, again, an avenue in which God is declaring himself to us. Uh, Calvin highlights this uh, in his Institutes when he writes, quote, the final goal of the blessed life rests in the knowledge of God, uh, but lest anyone then be excluded from access to that happiness, God also sowed in men's minds the seed of religion um, from which we have spoke about, but revealed himself and daily discloses himself in the whole workmanship of the universe. As a consequence, men cannot open their eyes without being compelled to see God. Indeed, God's essence is incomprehensible, hence his divineness far escapes all human perception, but upon his individual works, he has engraved unmistakable marks of his glory. It is amazing the ways in which if we pay attention to aspects of God's creation, pay attention to the details, wonder and awe and appreciation of God follow. Now, the law of God, uh, that does this as well. It's another place in which we can pay attention to God. Uh, And the law of God, again, comprising effectively, essentially, the just and loving relationships and community that we have with one another under God. In the law, uh, we can hear God talking to us. In the tangible relationships of care and compassion and trust, family and friendship, of common purpose and seeking justice and flourishing— These are places, if we pay attention to them, that will lead us to being able to pay attention to God. And one of the key developments that a steady prayer life uh, creates uh, is the way in which it opens us up along these lines to see the world as God sees it. To hear God communicating us uh, through our interactions of compassion and care and justice to one another. Uh, so, that, that said, while prayer can accomplish miraculous things, the most routine accomplishment of prayer is the formation of our hearts and our minds to be more Christ-like, to perceive things that God, as God sees them. Um, Philip Yancey highlights this point in his book on prayer, in which he writes, quote, In prayer, I shift my point, away, my point of view away from my own selfishness. I climb above the timberland and look down at the speck of myself. I gaze at the stars and recall what role I or any of us play in a universe beyond comprehension. Prayer is the act of seeing reality from God's point of view. Prayer, and only prayer, restores my vision to one that more resembles God's. 
I awake from blindness to see that wealth lurks as a terrible danger, not a goal worth striving for, that value depends not on race or status, but on the image of God every person bears, that no amount of effort to improve physical beauty has much relevance in the world beyond. End quote. Paying attention to God, praying to God, opening ourselves up to God, it can begin in these places, in paying attention to the good creation, in paying attention to God's good law of justice and peace, paying attention to the beauty of creation and the beauty of right relationship with one another. It's from these points that we can hear God beckoning us and calling us It is from these lower foothills of prayerful attention that we can grow to higher mountains of contemplating God more deeply and fully. These are places in which we can chase after Christ, just as the disciples did, chase after our Creator and our Redeemer. And we can always take heart in the fact that our attention, uh, our prayers in these ways, do not need to be perfect because God is drawing us along in and through them. Uh, God is drawing us to grow in our capacity to be at rest with God and to increasingly accept and grow into the invitation that Christ proclaimed in the Gospel of Matthew. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is in these places where we grow in our attention to God that we also welcome in, as it says in the hymn, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling, the joy of heaven, the earth come down. We welcome that joy, that love divine, to fix in our humble dwelling, to fix in us its humble dwelling. We welcome it to breathe its loving spirit into our troubled breast and to let us all inherit that promised rest. To God be the glory, brothers and sisters, forever and ever. Amen.